Hi folks, Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is Friday, December 9th, 2011. The year's almost gone, and guess where we're at? Episode 800-800 of the Survival Podcast. It's kind of a landmark number. It's kind of a big thing. Not as big as 1,000. You guys got to help me figure out what we're going to do for episode 1,000. I haven't decided yet. We better know by 900 so we have time to make it happen. Anyway, when you want like a, like a number like 800, you want something to be big going on. So we have something big today. Rob Wolf, author of The Paleo Solution, very, very sought by all kinds of media, probably gives a media engagement a day. That's how sought this guy is. We've got him here on the Survival Podcast. We'll have him in just a minute. Uh, I want to do the housekeeping like always, but before I even do that, I want to talk to you about something today that I hope it's real. I really hope you'll listen if you kind of are like on the fence about this episode or whatever. I really want to speak to you, and I want you, after 800 episodes, I want you to give me two minutes here to reach you about why this is important and why this is a survival topic. Every day I get countless emails from you guys about the government's doing this and the government's doing that, or this corporation's doing this and this corporation's doing that. And generally what you're telling me is that these people are lying to us. They're lying to us, they're deceiving us, and they're stripping of us our li of our liberty. I say it all the time when I talk about gardening, permaculture, and anything to do with our food supply and storing food. Food is absolutely the most important thing to our survival. So if we are being lied to about food... I think it's a very important topic for modern survival. And you don't have to agree with me. I just want you to examine the reality and the results and the scientific information that you will hear from Mr. Wolf today. That sounds cool, doesn't it? Mr. Wolf. I love that. Anyway, I want you to examine that. And I want you to actually kick it around. This is a Friday. It's a good thing to kick around through the weekend. I want you to kick around giving it a shot for 30 days. You don't have anything to lose. You can judge the results for yourself, and you can see how it works. I also want you to consider, if you have not done so, picking up a copy of The Paleo Solution by Rob Wolf. He's going to tell you how to get all the information that's in the book for free on his website during our interview today. I would like you to consider picking up a copy of his book because he's been kind enough to come to our show. And I'll let you know, I do these interviews in advance. He's also been kind enough to invite me onto his podcast, which is one of the top 10 podcasts on iTunes, kind of on a rolling basis. So he's been really kind to us as a community, and I, I, that would be one way you could repay his kindness and maybe learn something at the same time. But to me, this is a survival topic because if we have been told a lie by a group of people that we can only look to for all the other lies they've told, megacorps and government, about our food, don't you think we might want to deconstruct it and try to figure out the truth? If gruel is really good for us, why do we have so many modern diseases? I'll leave the rest of that to Rob to discuss. Before I bring him on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Safe Castle Royal. 
You know who Safe Castle Royal is, right? The original survival podcast sponsor. The first company that came to me and said, Jack, love what you're doing, love your community, want to be an official part of it, let me sponsor your show. Did not go to him, did not seek him. Vic Rontala came to me and asked for that and has been here. This will be going into our fourth year, and he has been with us for about six months after we started when we picked up him up. So in over three years. And I know it'll be four. And I know it'll be five. And he's a diehard supporter of the show. So when you're looking for prepping items, remember that. Get by Safe Castle. Check out his site. See if there's something there that you can use. And, you know, if, if you're looking to add to your preps, good place to go. Great guy to deal with. And remember, he has a discount buyer's club. $49 one time. Rest of your life, you get big, huge discounts on everything Safe Castle sells. MSB members, you get it for free. That's a big deal that Vic's done that too. I'm just telling you, we've got a real strong supporter of the show in Vic Rontala and Safe Castle Roll. Next up today, uh, backyard food production. That's Marjorie down there south of Austin. You want to know how to turn your backyard into a food production machine? I'll tell you what, Marjorie can show you how to do it with her DVD. Here's another interesting factoid. Marjorie is the only person who ever left the show as a sponsor due to some situations on her end, not our end, And then wanted to come back, and I made an exception, put her right back to the front of the line, and gave her the next available spot when one opened. And we get a spot open maybe once a year. I didn't do that because Marjorie wanted to pay more than the, per, the per, other person at the head of the line. Actually, I gave her her old rate back and brought her back. I brought her back because I believe in what she is doing so much that I want her as a sponsor. That tells you something about my opinion of the material she puts out. So check out BackyardFoodProduction.com today. And remember, the best way to make sure you're dealing with all of our sponsors is go to our site, TheSurvivalPodcast.com. Click on their banners in the right-hand margin. Our sponsors go through a vetting process. They are a personal endorsement by myself. Please remember that. Next up, remember, you can connect with me, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. Uh, those are the best ways to do that. I'm always available out there. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. I want to get Rob on, so I'm not going to say much about it other than we're running our sale. Sale runs through the 15th. That's sometime next week. Don't remember what day it is, but on the 15th, it's over. Last sale of the year. Last sale till probably late March or April of next year. Uh, we're just not going to do them all the time. It kind of devalues the, the regular sale price. First year of membership, though, 30 bucks. Discount code is SNOW. You can sign up online and use it when you sign up. If you want to pay by check, money, order, cash, silver, by U.S. mail, write it on the form. Those paying by silver, you'll get 14 instead of 12 months per ounce of silver. All right, folks, as I said during the introduction segment, we are fortunate to have the uh, the third ever best-selling author here on the Survival Podcast and one of my favorite people because I attribute his work to me shedding about 80 pounds off of what used to be my big fat ass. That's as blunt as I can be about it. And, of course, I'm talking about Rob Wolf, uh, author of The Paleo Solution. Rob, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Huge honor to be here. Thanks, Jack. Uh, it's an honor for me to have you, man. Um, it took a lot to get you here. I think you guys actually sent in a request like last summer and uh, we were on vacation. Something got hosed up, but really happy to have you here. And much better now that I've actually had a chance to live the lifestyle you recommend. Um, and my results, as the audience knows, have been phenomenal. But for those that maybe are listening to my show for the first time or didn't hear those episodes, can we start out with just a little bit about yourself and what led you to paleo nutrition and what paleo nutrition means? Sure. You know, going way back, like I've always been an, an athlete. I was a California state powerlifting champion, a amateur kickboxer, always kind of geeked out on nutrition and training and athletics and stuff like that. I, I did an undergrad in, in biochemistry, went, went on to do uh, some research biochemistry type stuff related to lipid metabolism cancer and autoimmunity. And 
around the mid 90s, I started tankering with vegetarianism and then eventually uh, veganism because, you know, it's, it, you know, being kind of a, I guess, kind of counterculture mindset and, you know, wanting to see what, what was up with all that stuff. I started uh, tinkering with it and I, I was very, um, this was a, a great learning experience for me, even though it very nearly killed me it, in that I completely just, uh, put up on a shelf any sense of like rational self feedback that I had because I started getting sick almost immediately when I started eating more carbs, more grains, more legumes, that sort of gig. And instead of listening to my body and kind of looking at where my blood lipids were going, the fact that I was developing ulcerative colitis, I just kind of ignored all that because I was trying to embrace this kind of hippie vegetarian, you know, save the planet kind of, kind of gig. And, uh, I, I became very, very sick at the age of around 26, 27. I had ulcerative colitis so bad that it was uh, probably going to necessitate a, a bowel resection I had high blood pressure, bad triglycerides. I mean, I, I was just a train wreck. And right around this time, we discovered that some problems that my mom had had for a long time, basically she had some autoimmune diseases, lupid, lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, that kind of flared right around this time. And her rheumatologist, through the process of doing some, some standard blood work, uh, he tracked down that she had an intolerance to grains, uh, specifically gluten, which you would find in like wheat, rye, oats, barley, millet. Uh, most folks are familiar with a condition called celiac disease, but she had celiacs. She also had uh, autoimmune reactivity to legumes and autoimmune reactivity to uh, dairy. And so I, I was talking to my mom on the phone. It, she very nearly died from from all this stuff. And when I was talking to my mom on the phone and she was kind of relating to me that she was really reactive to grains, legumes, and dairy, and that it was the opinion of her rheumatologist that the, this kind of cross reactivity with these foods was probably causing her autoimmune diseases. And I was kind of sitting there thinking about this and I was like, you know, what the heck do you eat if you don't eat grains, legumes and dairy? And I was just kind of ruminating on this and, and, uh, it just popped into my head. I was kind of like, okay, these things are Neolithic foods. Uh, you know, basically you, you have all of human history leading up until agriculture. And then it was agriculture forward that we started eating grains, legumes, and, and dairy in any large amounts. And so I, I you know, just kind of ran down that rabbit hole and was thinking, okay, what, what do all organisms eat? They eat the stuff that they evolved to eat in the particular biome that, that they existed in throughout their, uh, you know, kind of special history and all that. And so this idea of an ancestral diet or paleolithic diet popped into my head, and I went into the house turned on the computer, which this was around 1998, 99. Uh, so we're still dealing with dial-up. And uh, there was this new thing called Google. And I put paleo diet into Google, and I found some work by Arthur Devaney and Lauren Cordain, Lauren Cordain being the, the kind of guru of the paleo diet movement and eventually became my mentor. And everything that they described about the paleo diet versus this Neolithic diet talked about things like inflammation, gut damage, uh, the problems that grains and legumes prevent or present for, for people who try to consume them. And this was really the, the kernel or the, the seed of discovery with all this. And I, I just literally changed my, my eating overnight and the ulcerative colitis went away. The high blood pressure went away and, uh, uh, continued to research this for a while and then eventually got out of, of, you know, kind of biomedical research and of all things, I opened a gym in Northern California and started putting in this kind of evolutionary biology approach 
to the clients that we were working with, and it worked remarkably well. We were eventually picked as a, one of Men's Health's top 30 gyms in America, and then I wrote the book, and that made New York Times bestseller. Uh, the podcast, we have a, a Paleo Solution podcast that usually ranges between number one and number five on, on iTunes, and so we've just had a, a remarkable amount of success, and it's all born of sharing an idea and having people tinker it with, you know, this paleo eating lifestyle, you know, we deal with sleep and vitamin D and, and all these different facets of health and lifestyle. And they get such great results off of it that they, they, you know, just share the message with virtually everybody that they run into. They can be, uh, I, I think kind of annoying when they, when they first go out and start talking to folks about it, but that, that's yeah, you can get a little messiah complex because you're like, look, look, look at this picture of me when I was fat. And then you're like, look at me now, you know, and it feels good. You want to share it. You totally do. But you can be like, the it, there's a, what's the saying? There's none so holy is the newly converted. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, you kind of have to, to rein that in a little bit because you can actually unsell people from just giving a shot. But, you know, the, the power that I think is, you know, driving a lot of this, we had a lot of people that were literally dying. You know, they, they had some sort of uh, autoimmune disease. They had horrible blood work and they've just felt terrible for years. And then they do a very, very simple nutrition and lifestyle intervention, something that's totally livable over the long haul. And it just transforms their life. And so then like you would have to drop them in the middle of Siberia and put a brick wall around them to keep them from talking about this stuff and that that's really the reason why this this message has gone as far as it has if you do a little bit of google analytics searching you know things like paleo diet now surpasses vegan diet as a search term you know paleo diet has just kind of trended and seems to be going to the moon so it, it and that's not to that's not a validation for it that's not scientific validation but for me it's very very intriguing because you don't have any governmental organizations, you don't have academia, you don't even really have much of a, a media supporting this concept. Everything is very high-carb, low-fat, vegetarian, vegan, and this is as kind of contrary to that main message as you can get, but yet it is it is just crushing it in, in the kind of realm of, of this idea versus that idea. You know, and, and I think that's because it, I think that's because it works mm -hmm. and it also makes me think, yesterday I gave an interview to Paul Wheaton on his podcast, and we were talking about veganism, and he has a lot of vegans in the permaculture space around him, and he wanted to be very polite to them, but he also said, the reality is I know a lot more former vegans than active vegans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's very interesting to me, too, and cause, because the more I look into this, the more I find that to be the case. I find an awful lot of people that used to be, and, and, and a comparatively lower number that are, and that says something to me too. Well, and you know that 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 whole like kind of vegan deal is really kind of illustrative of like the the false dichotomy that exists in particularly in America but kind of the western world that everything gets boiled down to this either or kind of gig. It's like you either eat meat or you don't eat meat. You either are interested in uh, conservation or you're not. And there's a reality that you can absolutely develop stable, sustainable the integrations of both permaculture and elements of these these large economy of scale efficient food production mechanisms, you can start wetting this stuff, and it doesn't have to be an either or gig. And we don't have to totally destroy our biosphere in the process. And and you know, uh, rise of the planet of the vegans is not 
the only way to do this. And in fact, there have been some really good books written. The Vegetarian Myth by, uh, I believe, Lear Keith is a fantastic one. She does a rather thorough economic analysis of, of this whole story. And, you know, the vegan scene is, 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 it portrays this perception that it's bloodless and it's not. It portrays it as, as being completely sustainable and it's not. And in fact, some sort of a dynamic biosphere that involves both herbivores and the things that consume herbivores, whether on a small scale bacteria or large scale being, you know, more, uh, predatory animals, that is a stable, uh, sustainable, uh, biosphere. Yeah, I've always said that if you want to see what sustainable meat looks like, we just screwed it up. It was called the American bison. Exactly. There were 50 million of them out there, and they wandered everywhere. And we we did more harm to that species through the use of barbed wire than we did bullets because they could have came back, but we've destroyed their migratory pathway. So if we want to build a sustainable um, system today using uh, ruminants and large animals, we need to mimic that with a paddock system or something like that because we can't let them free range the way they used to, true free range, right. where you're talking miles and miles and miles of the way things used to be. Yeah. But it works. Nature did it. Yeah, and, and the, the, the bison story is a great illustration. The, uh, the, the, the peak estimated bison population in, in America specifically, but North America overall, uh, was only slightly less than the current uh, number of cattle head in North America. And and so it, it's a fully sustainable story, particularly when you compare and contrast that with the inputs of oil that go into producing corn that then is put into producing the, the cattle and all that stuff. So, it, you know, with, there's a there's a lot of moving parts to it. But if we actually put our emphasis into, you know, whatever plant material that we grow, Fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, roots, tubers, uh, squash, stuff like that. That's uh, actually lower, much less intensive on the landscape, more sustainable, more nutritious, less health problems. And then you open up these areas of, of grassland for uh, large ranging herbivores and probably shifting out of like cattle and heading to bison would be smart because they're, they're better adapted to that biome and all that. But we're talking some pretty big changes here, but the, the, the reality is that, you know, it, it, you can't just get in and argue this kind of vegan or vegetarian approach as the only way to have like a globally sustainable food ecology. There are other ways to do this. And I, I would argue that maybe this other way may actually be the way to do it. But you know that I think it's actually much better. But I want to I want to back up a little bit because with you and I and I think both of us share a passion for where we're headed with this. We'll miss over some of the nutritional stuff sure. that I want to cover before we get there. Um, so what I actually would like you to do now, if you wouldn't mind, is give people kind of like a five minute lesson on paleo history and the 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 Paleolithic record that supports this. Um, for instance, I'm right now getting ready to start reading Pandora's Seed, and that really goes into it a lot. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Word. But one way or another, if you could just kind of, like you did in the beginning of your book, take people through kind of what human beings did before we planted corn. Sure. And, and you know, uh, I, I could, we are at a level of sophistication now that it, I have a good friend, Matt Lalonde, who's a, a Harvard chemist, a Harvard PhD chemist, and uh, he gets very off-put by the, the historical observational justification for the paleo thing, you know, cavemen did it, so we should do it. And, and, uh, so I can build this stuff up from molecular biology and genetics either way, but 
at the end of the day, what we're talking about here is evolution via natural selection. And so that's kind of the overarching theme that that ties all this stuff together. And when you look at human history and prehistory, we had about three million years in which we evolved greater and greater emphasis of both, uh, you know, kind of meat consumed items that that was uh a scenario that uh, I believe Leslie Aiello put forward in the expensive tissue hypothesis where, you know, if you compare a human versus a chimpanzee, the chimpanzee has a smaller brain, but a much larger gut because the, the chimpanzee derives a significant amount of its calories from a, a fermentive process. So the cellulosic fermentation in the gut producing a lot of energy, and we simply don't do that. And we had, a couple of innovations where we started using tools back around three million years ago to open up the long bones and the, the skulls of uh, uh, scavenged animals. This was a very nutrient dense source of both calories and also these long chain fatty acids, EPA and DHA that we would find in, in fish oil now. And it's, it's theorized that this was kind of opening the door for a, a, a evolutionary trade off of reducing gut size and then producing a bigger brain and all kinds of interesting things grew out of that, you know, culture, cooperative hunting and, and, you know, it's just kind of moved forward, but all the way from uh, Australopithecus uh, forward to, you know, uh, uh, Neanderthal, Homo erectus, uh, Homo sapiens, our, our legacy has been living as hunter gatherers. And, and what went into that was, you know, seasonally available animal products, Roots, shoots, tubers, fruits, vegetables, and, and typically not much reliance on the staples of modern food, grains, legumes, and dairy. Uh, we, with all of this stuff, we continue to push back the earliest known instance of pretty much anything you want to talk about. We keep pushing back how long human beings have been using fire, how long human beings have been using uh, stone tools, and also, we, we keep pushing back how uh, long ago human beings did utilize grains to some degree. Like, I think they had a, a couple of sites in the Middle East where uh, human beings were obviously collecting grains and processing them uh, maybe as far as 100,000 years ago. But the, the general theme there is that it wasn't a staple food. And what we see... Correct. It's correct. I, I, real quick, if i got another question while you're on this, I get a ton of people saying, but the ancient grains were better for you, and you can go back and grow those. Do you think there's anything to that? Well, it, here's, here's the point with this, and this is something that uh, uh, folks need to really keep in mind. When you compare and contrast the health and robustity of typical hunter-gatherer versus typical agriculturalist, the agriculturalist lost on average six inches of height relative to the hunter gatherer. And, and this is clear in the, both in the anthropological record, you know, the archaeological record, and also when we compare and contrast a contemporarily studied hunter gatherers, which started happening around the, the early to mid 1800s all the, all the way forward, when we would compare and contrast health of hunter gatherers versus agriculturalists. So with the adoption of agriculture, we saw a decrease in height. We saw an increase in dental caries. Uh, the, there was just a huge paper that popped up here showing, you know, that, that hunter-gatherers had no problem dealing with the, the dropping of their uh, uh, secondary molars, the wisdom teeth, because of the type of diet that they ate. But because of the limited nutrient intake of the, the diet of agriculturalists, you started seeing tooth crowding and all kinds of dental malformation uh, be, because of these types of foods. And so it, it's a very clear 
distinction, the, the agriculturalist versus the hunter gatherer. If you ever go to Europe and you look around at the middle aged, uh, or uh, uh, middle aged, uh, uh, doorways, the average height for men was around four foot eight. For women, it was like four foot three, four foot five. And it's because eating these, these unleavened breads and low protein intake, people got very, very short. You know, the, the stature became much less. Infant mortality rates went up. So it, it, I think there's a, a thing floating around the Internet, a nice paper talking about the, uh, the Plains Indians at one time. They were considered giants because the average male height was uh, 5 foot 11. And all that they ate was, uh, you know, like bison and blueberries and, and that sort of gig. And when the American cavalry started making its way across the, the, the plains, you know, the, the cavalrymen were uh, on average height like five foot four. And, and this is all wow. nutritionally driven. We only in the last couple of decades in North America and in Northern Europe have reached the same average height as Homo erectus, Neanderthals, and Archaic Homo sapiens had throughout the totality of their history. And interestingly, in the United States, we are now seeing a decrease in average height because our, our food quality has gone downhill so badly. Because now we're eating stuff that comes out of boxes instead of comes with fur and feathers. Exactly, I mean, yeah. To me, it's, you know, when Americans started eating bacon and eggs, and when we got to a level of prosperity where we could, that's when we started to rebound. I also always get people saying, but agriculture won, right? Agriculture won. And, and my take is, and I'd love to hear your take on this, my view is, Agriculture, quote unquote, won because more people survived because they were able to produce more total food. And I can look at that food almost as a survival ration. That, that doesn't mean the quality of those who survived was better. Well, it, and you know, here's a very, it, that is true, but here's an interesting point. I have a, a good friend, a really, really smart guy, much, much smarter than me, Kurt Harris, Dr. Kurt Harris, season MD, and he and I, talked about some a, a bunch of this stuff and there's a great book called 1491 and it basically talks about the, the Americas pre pre-Columbian contact and what's interesting there is that you had a population in the Americas that is estimated to be somewhere between one half to two thirds of what the current population is today and you you had not only a mix of hunter-gatherer groups but also some some groups that we would call agriculturalist in, in, uh, makeup. But the interesting thing is that the agriculture that they were largely practicing was nuts. You know, like in, say like a southern United States, uh, hickory nuts, pecans, squash, uh, food forestry. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, uh, the nutrient density was much, much greater and we didn't see the decline in health until really the introduction of, of a grass seed oriented uh, uh, items and, you know, particularly uh, a corn in the Americas. But I would put corn kind of like an order of magnitude lower in nastiness than, say, like wheat, rye, oats, barley, millet. Like those things are nasty. And then corn being somewhat less, and, and you and I talked about this briefly before we, we started recording, but everything in biology protects itself either with like teeth or horns or poison or fangs or something. You know, if you have, don't have a defense mechanism, then something eats you And cereal grains have these various chemical defense mechanisms that prevent predation by other organisms. And part of what goes on with that is damage to the gut lining of critters. And we see this uh, evolutionarily conserved, the same mechanisms that cereal grains damage the guts of Cockroaches and locusts are evolutionarily conserved in large part in humans. They have similar wow. points of entry. 
They have similar types of damage that are raw. Interestingly, insects are much better adapted at eating grains than we are because they, they've been predating them much, much longer. But they're, the, the, the mechanism of attack is evolutionarily conserved, or at least there's homology, there's similarity from things all the way as low as, as you know, invertebrate insects all the way to humans. And so this is a, a consistent survival mechanism that these organisms use. And fruits have some of this stuff. Like if you want to find the most toxic substances in fruit, it's in the skin, um, also in the seeds. But, you know, with, with fruits, we have this uh, kind of reproductive uh, trade-off where they're what I call give a little, get a little, where they're giving up a little bit of nutrition so that organisms will eat them, uh, uh, spread the seeds around and help perpetuate the, the organism. Then you have other critters that use the bugger off method and, you know, a poison oak, a cacti. And I would put grains in this this category where they, they use different anti-predation techniques to prevent them from being consumed. And uh, most of the processing methodology that we use, whether it's fermenting grains, whether it's cooking potatoes, it's all an attempt to minimize toxins and improve uh, digestibility. Like if you don't caramelize or, or polymerize starch, then it's very difficult to, to digest. And that's where, you know, eating a raw potato isn't really going to get you all that far. It's, it's going to give you a gut. Not to mention it tastes like crap. Yeah, it tastes horrible. Yeah. I mean, if you've ever like boiled potatoes that you're going to, you know, mash or use as a just a steamed potato and you undercook one and you, you bite into it, you're like, Oh no, I don't want that. Right. And, and that was kind of my epiphany when I read your book. It kind of tied things in because, you know, I, I started researching this stuff back when uh, the Dr. Zeeds came out with their protein power plan and a little bit of the Atkins thing. And, and there was always, it was like, always, I was kind of like kicking around that whole thing. And then I read your book and you talked about the defense mechanism of the grain. And what really did it for me was when you said, there's no advantage to the grain if it gets consumed. But if we eat a piece of fruit, especially something like a strawberry where the, the fruit is really the seed on the outside, it can spread through manure in, in the woods, and that's what man did before we got all, you know, quote-unquote civilized. And it, my epiphany was basically that if I could eat it raw, and that includes me, because raw meat, we don't eat for certain sanitary reasons at all, but if I could eat it raw, it kind of went on the at least sometime list, and if I couldn't eat it raw, it went on, like, my never list, and I do break never. Like, for Thanksgiving, I ate a big pile of stuffing. Right. You know, it's Thanksgiving. It's not going to kill you one day. I mean, maybe you have a real um, condition or something. For the average person, I don't think that's going to hurt them to do these things on special occasions or whatever. Right. right. Yeah, I, I'm wickedly gluten intolerant, so, like, that pile of stuffing would have caused me to destroy. You wouldn't do that. It, well, it would have caused me to destroy probably six to eight bathrooms within a, a you know, a, a one-mile radius. So they would have been decommissioned <laughs> after that. So, wow. but, but obviously, here again, we've got a a spectrum of responsiveness to all this stuff. Some people are very, very reactive to gluten. Some people are reactive to carbohydrates. The, the, you know, I just want to circle back because the whole like kind of ancient grains deal is definitely something that pops up frequently. The thing that I continue to hang my hat on with all this on, on just a big picture kind of market-based level is that I am not seeing anyone, say like out of kind of the Western price camp, that, that ferment your grains, ancient grains kind of deal, these folks are not reversing autoimmune diseases the way that we're seeing this stuff happen. Like we, uh, Lauren Cordain, my mentor, uh, we did a call for people who fit the following criteria, had been medically diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, a, a, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, multiple sclerosis, something like that, uh, some situation in which their body's immune system was attacking itself, and then they went paleo, and then they had some sort of postscript medical, uh, you know, evaluation, 
And in one day, we had 212, 215 people uh, submit information to us. And out of that, we've kind of whittled it down to 100 folks. Now, this is a, a heavily biased thing. It's not a study at all. It's just a survey. But out of this group of people that replied, we had over 100 people uh, you know, state that their rheumatoid arthritis went into remission or lupus went into remission. And we have medical documentation to this effect. And I am just not seeing this with anybody else. Uh, autoimmune diseases are something like the third or fourth leading cause of death in the United States. And we are reversing it via this basic, you know, meat, fruit, veggies, good fat, take some vitamin D, get some sleep, go for a walk kind of approach and I, I'm just not seeing anybody else do that. And that's what I keep really hanging my hat on. I can get super geeked on the, the technicality. I, I used to give a, a talk that was an eight-hour talk, you, you know, explaining all the pathophysiology of, of all this stuff. And I have an, uh, an app coming out talking about that stuff at some point. So you can get real deep and detailed on the science, or you can kind of pull it back to a 30,000-foot level and look at this just like if you give it a shot, you give it a shot for 30 days, do you look, feel, and perform better? Do biomarkers of health and disease go in a favorable direction? And it's kind of a, it's a binary gig. It's either a yes or no kind of kind of story. It's not um, soft. It's very, very granular. You can auger down to some truth with this. And it's because we're talking about human genetics and evolution and all the rest of that stuff. So, like, if people aren't comfortable with like the historical revisionist story of this whole thing, the hunter gatherer and all the rest of that stuff. That's fine. I can build the same story from molecular genetics and, and uh, uh, cellular biology and actually make a more airtight story. But at the end of the day, it still does circle back to evolutionary biology and unless you don't buy into the evolution thing, which is a whole other, <laughs> just, just ball of wax. So yeah, and I understand, and I kind of actually want to move into the whole sustainable thing here in just a second. The one thing I'd like you to talk about from a science standpoint before we do that, though, is the process of glycation. Mm -hmm. uh, I had Dr. Greg Ellis on uh, last month, who's the author of a, a book called The Glycation Factor. And when I actually began to understand that when we put this body into a high-carb intake state, and we put the body into a glycation state, and it, it then creates these things called AGEs. And these things break down further, and these create permanent plaques that stay in the body. It, it, to me, all the rest of it, as long as that's true, and my understanding is there's like 4,000 published papers on this concept that nobody seems to have ever heard of, that, that that alone is enough of a scientific case, because basically, and I think you put it this way in your book as well, you're killing yourself, you're poisoning yourself. Could you talk a little bit about glycation before we kind of segue to the next step? Sure, sure. So, you know, it, it's a normal process. We actually, our, our body uh, normally uses glycation to modify proteins. So, like, our, our uh, ribosomes will produce proteins, and then occasionally our body will specifically, purposefully put things like lipids or sugars on the proteins to modify the structure, to modify the functionality and the chemistry and whatnot. What gets nasty is when our, our blood sugar levels get too high, or even just moment to moment, even if your blood sugar levels are not high, some amount of our blood glucose is going to stick to the proteins in our body. It sticks to our red blood cells. It sticks to the lining of our, our vascular bed. It, it ends up uh, accumulating in the, the retina of our eyes and stuff like that. And it, this is called non-enzymatically mediated glycation, advanced glycation end products. Um, we have enzyme systems to undo this process. 
So an errant glucose molecule will stick to the interior of your, your vascular lumen, and then an enzyme can undo that. But what happens is that if our blood glucose levels are too high too often, then these AGEs, these advanced glycation end products, accumulate and they start breaking down the cellular machinery of our body. Our, our vascular bed doesn't work the way it should. Our enzymes don't work the way that they should. Our heart doesn't work the way that it should. And this is largely an outgrowth of, of too high of blood sugar over too long of a period of time. And the, the interesting gig with this, it additionally, uh, if you eat relatively low carb, but have a pro-inflammatory lifestyle. If you don't sleep enough, if you don't have enough vitamin D, if you don't exercise, if you are under stress, you can have high blood glucose levels from cortisol, which is a stress hormone. So you could be eating a a lower carb diet, but you eat a little bit of food that's pro-inflammatory. Say like the the only food that you eat, you know, or carbs that you eat is like your one or two pieces of bread a day, but that bread causes gut irritation. That gut irritation causes an up-ramping of inflammation throughout your body, which then tends to elevate cortisol. Cortisol breaks down protein in the body, converting it into glucose. And then you can end up actually with elevated blood glucose levels despite eating an otherwise what appears to be a low-carbohydrate diet. So it goes beyond even just carbohydrate content to the quality of the carbohydrates, the way that we sleep, the way that we exercise, how, uh, how good our vitamin D status is in this overall kind of inflammatory picture. But uh, advanced glycation end products are really, really nasty from an aging and health perspective, and uh, it's something that you definitely want to take steps to control. And that's why I see this. Okay, there's your coronary artery disease, right? There's your there's your autoimmune responses. Because when I had Greg Ellis on, his, his statement was, what do you think, our body's so stupid it doesn't know to, not to attack itself? You know, all of these, all of these autoimmune uh, issues are recent developments. They, you know, the, the, the average caveman walking around did not have lupus. That, that is absolutely correct. And, but what we have here is a really, um, heavily, it's a tightly tuned machine. And, it, and I don't even want to call it a machine. It, it's, it's like the weather. It's like the stock market. Like our, our immune system has as much information processing power as our, our central nervous system does. Like it, it is a, a different type of intelligence, but it's wickedly intelligent. But the, the balance that it's trying to strike is not killing us while also preventing the development of things like cancer while also saving us from bacteria, parasites, and, and uh, uh, you know, viruses and stuff like that. And this is one of the things that we see, say, like in pregnancy in women. Pregnancy, my, my wife's pregnant right now, so I'm, I'm reliving all of my, my embryology and, and all that sort of stuff. But pregnancy is a really interesting uh, cross-section of this evolutionary biology picture, and it illustrates the trade-offs. During pregnancy, women with autoimmune diseases tend to see an, a dramatic improvement in autoimmunity, because the immune system is stepped down several, you know, uh, DEFCONs, because if the immune system is overactive, then you end up damaging or, or killing the fetus. So, it, you know, there is a validity that, you know, the, the, uh, the immune system is very, very intelligent, but if you cause some systemic inflammation over the long haul, like damaging your gut from grains, grains also have some proteins in them, grains, legumes, and dairy have proteins in them that look like proteins in our body, and if you damage the gut, these proteins can make their way into our body. And if you make an antibody to one of these proteins that say like look like the the 
uh, beta cells of the pancreas or something like that, then you can end up with a type of autoimmune disease. The, the immune system gets confused. So, it, so it's almost like we're, we're inoculating ourselves with food against ourselves. Yes. So then we attack ourselves. That's, that's, that's absolutely fascinating, yeah. and it makes perfect sense. We're creating mimicry in the protein structure. And, and that's what it's called, molecular mimicry. Yeah. Wow, I'm smart. You I came up with the right word. Yes. I didn't even know what it was. <laughs> See, now I am smart, folks. Rob Wolf says I'm smart. Um, I, I do want to move on now to kind of your stuff you're doing with permaculture, and you have a big project coming out. Because if I keep going, I'll, I'll we'll be here for two hours, and I know you got other things to do. But you, I've kind of latched on to the whole we can grow our own food thing, which is a huge thing here in our community as well. And you want to talk about what you're doing and why you see it that way? Yeah, you know, I, I started to, or I had this idea when I was writing my, my book about uh, two two ends of the spectrum. One of them was food production, and I'll, I'll call it on the bottom end, you know, just make this kind of false hierarchy deal. But then on the, the top end was this uh, idea of kind of like medical practitioners who are bought into this whole evolutionary biology paleo diet gig. And I saw in my my mind's eye, this network that started with food production went into places like gyms and uh, uh, which in my mind is really kind of like the first line of medicine, getting people exercising, providing community, uh, providing education and support with, you know, the, this whole paleo diet concept. And then at the, the outer edge of this thing was uh, uh, academics and healthcare providers that could provide support to, to all the people involved in this, this kind of, you know, network. It, but at the bottom of this thing was this idea of what I called the Liberty Garden, which was kind of a, an homage to the victory gardens of like World War I, World War II, where folks started producing some of their own food and, uh, uh it took some of the pressure off of, uh, the, the bigger food production and whatnot. And I, I see it now not so much as a, a safety valve from the the big food producers, but actually a uh, economic lever to force better food quality and sustainability on the the bigger scene. And, and even my ideas about this have have been growing and modifying a lot. I just read a really fantastic book called the The Rational Optimist. And uh, gosh, I'm I'm blanking on the guy's name, but it, it's a really amazing book. But you know, it's where I am right now with this thing is trying to think of how we can get the best elements of both our economies of scale, uh, uh, you know, the, the ability to ramp up food production, to get a lot of production out of a very small space. But at the same time, what is the best stuff that we can get out of uh, sustainable permaculture, uh, grass-fed, you know, wild-caught wild fish, uh, sustainable and, and really more ethical animal husbandry? And what's the way that we can best marry these two concepts together and, and get both high productivity so that we can feed a global economy and a, you know, a, a growing global population, but at the same time also keep people healthy and uh, uh, improve the quality of the food that we're eating. And so that, that's kind of where I am with this thing. And uh, um, um, I, I've been talking to a number of people who are, are both at the very, very small end of food production, but also at the large end. Like I have some friends who are uh, big, big players in the dairying industry. And it's, it's interesting. These folks are looking at getting out of dairying because it is so resource intensive. It's so heavy on water usage and stuff like that. And you start seeing the, the resource scarcity of water. These guys are moving into things like olive and uh, uh, fruit and nut production because – 
you, you can paleo you, stuff. It, it, paleo <laughs> stuff, and, and you know, interestingly, yes. stuff that is very low resource intensiveness, but uh, high demand, high caloric output, high nutrient output relative to like the the dairying process. So it, it's uh, it's kind of interesting. But you know, there was there was a, a couple of years where I really had hoped that there was some way that we could transform the global economy into a hundred percent kind of permaculture kind of gig. And I, I have to say that was probably born, in my opinion, of just kind of ignorance of the efficiencies that economies of scale bring to bear on this story. Like, I don't think we're going to get 100 percent away from inputting, uh, uh, you know, a synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. But that doesn't necessarily have to be the end of the world. I think that we can figure out ways of weaving in permaculture elements with elements of synthetic for permaculture and even, God forbid, things like uh uh, genetically modified organisms in, in certain uh, circumstances to kind of get an optimization out of this story so that we, we have the best quality food that we can possibly get, but at the same time be able to, to feed a global uh, population and, and that whole story. And the, the interesting thing is that I think that this is going to happen by driving the boat down this like grass-fed meat, wild-caught fish, uh, small decentralized kind of libertarian permaculture kind of story and it's going to end up leveraging the larger producers into producing food more along this direction. E- either that or government's going to try to shut down the, the small scale guys and we'll, we'll end up with some sort of like out and out like food revolution kind of gig. But my, my hope is that this stuff plays out more in a, uh, a market based scenario where we push from the bottom to get better quality food. And then at some point, the bigger players are going to co-opt this stuff, but then we're, we're going to both have better food, but we're also going to have better economies of scale, which everybody should win out at the end of the day with that. At least that's my uh, rose-colored glasses, uh, faith in the markets, kind of utopian uh, view of this whole thing. My, my view is more utopian than yours. I can see a day, and I don't see it probably in the next two decades or three decades, but I can see a day when NPK-based fertilizer is a thing of the past. I think it has to be there during a transitional stage. But what I've become more and more fascinated about, and you used a word earlier, nutritional density. And I can take nutritional density straight back to like my new fascination subject is soil biology mm-hmm. and how soil life works. And when you look at like a forest garden situation, a forest garden is not always a forest. It's a, it's an architecture of a garden and it's a very, very core principle to permaculture. When you look at the soil in something like that, that soil, I was just on Paul's podcast yesterday talking about this, that soil is a lake. It's full of microorganisms. It's full of hydration. It's full of, of every element, not just NPK, but all the other elements that these plants need. And the nutritional density of the food is higher, and the pest resistance is much higher. Because when a plant is extremely well hydrated, and a, a pest, at least most, there's pests that actually feed on the juice, but most pests, they're after the cellulose. And when they bite into a plant that's hydrated, it basically shuts off their instinct and they go somewhere else and they look for a non-hydrated plant to chew on because all that water doesn't work with their mandibles and the way that they're designed to operate. They're looking for the plant that is weak. That's their, their purpose. So I can see us getting there, but with this, the whole thing with the, the soil as a lake or the forest floor as a lake, I watched this video by Jeff Lawton recently and they took a little slide of soil and they put it under an electromicroscope so you could see the nematodes and the bacterium. It looked like a slide from a pond. Mm-hmm. 
And if I take even an organic farm and put their soil under that microscope, it doesn't look like that. It starts and looking monocolored. that's why they think they need the GMOs, and that's why they think they need the NPK. And be, to be fair, for right now we do because we have a whole system operating on it. And to, like, if, I, if you may be like overlord of the universe, God forbid, I couldn't just throw a switch tomorrow and say, no more, we will do it this way. We, there has to be this, like you said, kind of a bottom-up and top-down at the same time approach. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, the, the, that book again, uh, 1491, was very interesting for me in that they were, you know, uh, the, the Amazon rainforest has been – one thing, the, the guy made the point that uh, it used to contain a massive human population there. And when you cruise through the Amazon now, there's a ubiquity of uh, uh, fruit trees and nut trees and stuff like that. And his basic argument was that people were were tending and, and monitoring a, a huge continent-wide garden, basically, you know, and, and part of what they were doing to keep the, the soil uh, historic or, you know, conventional wisdom is that uh, tropical soils like this can't sustain a large human population over over the long haul and stuff like that. But they they discovered some techniques of uh, only partially uh, uh, burning different carbon sources, uh, it, which the, the carbon ends up accreting nutrients and moisture, and it basically enriches the soil. It's a very interesting account. And this is all stuff that I, I'm, I'm still – I'm just not sure where I am with the whole story. Like it like was related in this book. You know, we were looking at a, a population that was somewhere between one-half to, to two-thirds of the current – population in, in North and South America. Like it was a huge indigenous population here. Then you had kind of first contact with Europeans. Uh, uh, microbes basically decimated the population. Then, then Europeans come back a hundred years later and it looks like it's a, it's an empty continent, but in fact it, it wasn't prior to that, that first contact. But what you have is a reasonably sustainable system that itself went through ups and downs and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, expansions and contractions based on, uh, you know, environmental situations and political situations and stuff like that. But you had something that was much lower technology, much lower input than what we have now that was supporting a remarkably large population. Even if it was only one half of the current population, that's pretty damn substantial. And so how much of that type of technology could we weave into, mo- which is, I think, what you're talking about, could we weave into modern food production? And then what, what are the minimal inputs that we could put in from, from modern science that would give us some great pr- productivity? And, and this is some of the stuff that the, uh, the guy was making in the rational optimist was, was just that. I think that's Matt Ridley. Ridley yeah. Me. Matt Ridley. God, I always yeah. forget his name and, and, uh, just a brilliant guy, but he's making the point that, you know, this intensiveness of food production, what it does is it, it, to some degree, you end up seeing more space that used to be allocated for food production ends up turning into a, a vacant kind of pasture land and kind of goes back wild and stuff like that. And, you know, and there's kind of back and forth on all that story. But I'm, I'm really in a transitional phase right now trying to educate myself better about these things like like you're talking about the soil science and, and uh, what what is a way to optimize both of these things. And, and it, it kind of is... I guess kind of fractal in a way. We have this same story happening on our food production, the same story happening with, with human health. What are the best things that we can bring to bear on like kind of modern genomics and science and pharmacology to make people live longer, better, healthier lives? But at the same time, 
the, the basic human ecology is what needs to be addressed. We need good food, good sleep, good exercise, community, and all the rest of that stuff. There's no way you can pill or potion your way out of that. And then on, on I guess, this food production side, there's probably some integration of uh, technology and then just an understanding of natural biosystems that we're going to get some sort of a program optimization out of that. So I think some of the things that's that's really missing is really turning technology onto the earthworks side of thing, where we're actually structuring things and using swells and terraces and things like Google culture. Because as we, if we, I think if we got the kind of that kind of that going on a higher scale, we we could really get somewhere with the soil creation and with the reduction of irrigation requirement. The issue for large scale production is when you have swales and terraces, it doesn't allow you to just drive a tractor and harvest. Not to mention you're in a a polyculture environment where, and this is the this is why modern agriculture just has this. To me, it's like a dead end road. Eventually, you're just going to kill the soil to a point where it won't support life anymore. Nature doesn't ever monocrop. Right. I can show you a thousand pictures of natural settings, and if there's anything growing, there's at least two species, and there's probably 80 in one frame. And with that environment and that model, we have to get into a more human... The humans don't have to do a lot of the input, and the maintenance is very, very subtle, but the harvest actually requires somebody to go out there and get it. But see, what I like about what you're doing is you're trying to take it right into cities, right into towns, and if it's right out your door, going to get it is, is actually more convenient than going to the store. And we don't have to do 100% of our food that way, but if it was 20% uh, as a national average, it would be a massive reduction in the stress on this system that we have to subsidize with our tax dollars to keep up in the first place. Yeah, and I, I mean, it, it's uh, man, it's just a lot of moving parts. I mean, most of the foods that we subsidize are things that can get converted into uh, long-term shelf-stable foods. You know, corn, wheat, rice, all that, all that sort of jive. We don't really see much in the way of subsidization of fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds. Uh, it, it's uh, it's interesting, and and you know, one one of the things that I'm I'm thinking because the the this is typically the drumbeat of like the. Uh, the vegetarian sect is how are we going to feed a global uh, population as as we head into the net, you know heading through this century and we need to expand and stuff like that and what I'm not clear about is to what degree moving away from these economies of scale will in fact for you, you know how productive is a bunch of the stuff that we're talking about in, in the permaculture story. Like what I'm still trying to figure out is can we maintain and or improve output at, at, at a roughly current levels to be able to, to match pace with um, expanding global population. And par- part of this thing also, it, and it starts sounding a little bit, if you're a fan of like sci-fi, uh, you know, like Frank Herbert and Dune, and you start thinking maybe a century or two down the way, if and when we we globally uh, bring everybody up to say like a, a, a you know uh, Italy Spain Portugal level of of uh, infrastructure you know like all of sub-Saharan Africa is is no longer you know living hand to mouth that there's actual infrastructure and markets and food production when all that stuff happens population automatically drops. Uh, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing that population drop virtually everywhere as it is. 
And so, you know, the, the challenge that starts popping up is like the resource intensiveness of living this way. But even as we go forward, uh, it becomes less resource intensive at, at some point to move people through this process and get them living in kind of a westernized kind of scenario. And then we see populations drop. And then maybe at some point we circle back around and this thing becomes much more kind of uh, permaculture stable as we hit our, our global population peak. And then because people are affluent, they start having fewer kids. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting thing to look down the road at. I, I can tell you that just on the research I've done, the projects I've looked at, uh, the results they've had, the, the, definitely we can produce more, but the, and this is this is to me this is the conundrum. This is why we've ended up where we are. It's not that the people growing corn hate us. They're, I mean, come on. But I can store corn. I can store wheat. It's exactly what you said. So as a government, you want your people at least maintained so you can keep taxing them and using them. So you convince them that gruel is good for them. But the other side of that is is that gruel is actually reasonably stable on a shelf. So I can take that big harvest and then I can ferret it out through the rest of the year to feed people, where if we move to more of a permaculture environment, um, especially in temperate climates where we can't grow everything year-round, then we have to get much more involved with what exactly do we supplement or what do we bring in from an outside economy or when do we do that. But the areas that I've seen that basically the reason somebody went there, bought it, and turned it into a permaculture operation was because the land was so cheap, nobody thought you could do anything with it. And then they go into that piece of land and they create complete total abundance with it. And then my thought is, well, if we can do that in a, a rocky desert, what can we do with this place that, that actually used to be really, really fertile? And in many instances, that rocky desert used to be fertile. Right. It's just we brought back these natural systems. So I, I know the, the, the potentials there, but to me, it's how do we get from A to B? And, and you're right. There's a lot of hurdles in the way because, well, we've got 7 billion people to feed in the meantime. Right. And, and you know, th this may sound absolutely insane coming from, like, the paleo guy. But maybe some of this becomes a deal where, like, we genetically modify wheat to be less gut irritating. You know, I mean, as we discover more about why these things are problematic, maybe we can modify them so that they're less problematic. Although I, I've seen one interesting example of this with quinoa. Uh, quinoa is not a grain. It's it's botanically a fruit, but it, it coevolution. It, it it looks a whole lot like a grain, so it actually has anti predation chemicals in it, and one of them is a saponin. It's basically a soap-type substance that uh, causes irritation to the gut lining. But I, I was reading a, in, you know, kind of agricultural science paper, and they were having a hell of a time with this new quinoa, a low saponin quinoa. It was growing great, and then the birds ate it all, and they literally couldn't get <laughs> any of it out of the field. And this is wow. one of those things that in my eight-hour talk I, I mentioned Anything in biology that doesn't have protective mechanisms gets eaten. So these guys just keep scratching their heads, and they're like, we don't know really how to get around this deal. If we reduce the saponin content, then critters eat it. And then they have to figure out some sort of way of, like, killing the birds or dissuading the birds from eating the thing. And, and so it's kind of a, a funny rope-a-dope in, in that regard. Yeah. So. I have huge concerns about the GMO space. I really do. And but but my biggest concern with genetic modified organisms is not that they're genetically modifying the seed in of itself. But the fact that life forms get patented is a big problem for me. Um, but if I even let that go, it's what they're genetically modifying the seed to do. Right. So when we start genetically modifying corn so that I can spray 
Roundup on it, and now I'm eating Roundup, that's a bigger concern for me than the fact that the seed was modified in of itself. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's complex stuff, but e- even within that, occasionally you end up seeing a, a reduction in the total amount, you know, application of, uh, uh, the pesticides and whatnot, you know, and, that and just stops working, right? So we, we've created a super weed now, so you might as well not do it. And, but, and then, okay, so do we want to go to permaculture, right, Rob? So for five years, this guy sprays his soybean field with Roundup. Right, and now he decides I'm going to try this permaculture stuff. Well, guess what? The ground is literally drenched in this stuff. It doesn't break down, and the first time he tries to plant anything, especially a legume, there, death. Right, it won't grow. It won't thrive, and it might take seven to fourteen years for that stuff to break down in its half life to where I can even rehabilitate it to grow certain things. So my problem with companies like Monsanto with these GMOs, and they know exactly what they're doing, not only do they lock you into their seed and their spray, but they're actually damaging your land to a point where you ain't, you ain't got another option. Right. It's right. very, very difficult to change. So that's my, I don't want to go too far down that. No, that's, no, no, that's no. I, mean, what, I, I totally agree. And I mean, that, that's where like the, uh, the ethics of this stuff becomes very, very, uh, frustrating. Like I, I've actually known a couple of folks that were in that, you know, kind of corn belt scenario and, and, uh, uh, basically surrounded by GM corn and then their stuff gets infiltrated by it. And then technically they're selling somebody else's patented seed. And I, I told them, I'm like, plow this stuff under and start raising grass fed meat. <laughs> you know, and like, yeah, you, I, you, I, you just have to, I think I'm making more money. Yeah, I, I think they'd make more money. I know there's a, I can't remember the guy's name. There's a guy out in West Texas here that he sets up his operations in 100 acre unit or 100 acre units, cross cross fence to 101 acre pastures, and all the only time he has cattle, he doesn't even own any cows. He has, he winters over cattle for people. So you bring him your cows, and he sticks them. He sticks like cattle in in one acre, like to where they're like almost like a feedlot scenario, almost shoulder to shoulder, very very high density. But they stay in that that paddock for one day, mm. and then they go to the next paddock, and they go to the next paddock. And he's one of the few people making money in that industry. It's all natural grass, all pasture. They only are there for about ninety days, so about ten acres is your start for next year. It's not even been grazed for a year, and he charges his clients. You bring me your cattle. Maybe you've got you know. I don't know, 50 head, and we weigh them. And then when you pick them up, we weigh them again, and you pay me for their weight gain. Hmm. And, and that system's working very, very well. So there's all kinds of ways that we can get innovative. And, and my thing is, you know, when we say, is there enough production to transition, there is if we use animals. Right. And to right. me, there isn't if we don't use animals. It, the animal's more efficient. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, the, it, you get that uh, cellulose production via photosynthesis for free, in, instead of a, a, a corn-intensive growth, you know, oil, corn, et cetera. So you get that basic grass, you know, foliage production, and then the animal eats it. And uh, it, it's just, a, you know, can we shift uh, pallets to eat other foods, um, the, the, you know, shelf-stable elements of, of all this stuff? Like, the, it's, uh, it's interesting, although, you know, freezing food, is pretty cheap. Works just fine. And, uh, it uh, works just fine. Yeah. yeah so it, and, and with animals, we don't need to store the food. We harvest as needed. Right. So if we can, like, to me, the, the key to getting into the urban side of things and making people more self-sufficient, more poultry, more rabbits, more things like that, 
If I raise my own cow, I, it takes quite a sizable piece of land. I can do it on an acre, actually, and I can do it sustainably, but I'm pushing things to go that low, and that's one acre for the cow, not one acre for everything I'm doing, and that's about minimum. Um, but if I do rabbits, I can do that very, very sustainably in an urban backyard, and when I kill a rabbit, I've got tonight's meal, and I don't have to worry about the other rabbits to, to, to be preserved. They just sit there until it's their day to graduate to dinner. Right. Right. right, and that it, it, you remember Herbert Hoover with the two chickens in every pot. Well, if we put two chickens in every backyard, there's your eggs. Right, and, and that's probably more. Two hens is going to probably produce enough eggs for the average family of four, unless you eat a lot of eggs. Well, then get four chickens. Right. So all this stuff can happen. Um, it, it makes me. We're kind of ran out the end of the hour here, though, and I wanted to talk about one thing with you because this is getting some mainstream attention. But my understanding is you gave a scathing beating to uh, Doctor Oz. And uh, eventually that kind of pushed him to, and that's the Dr. Oz show for you guys out there, maybe don't have TVs or whatever, but he did some stuff on paleo, and I was like all excited. I called my wife, I'm like, honey, make sure you DVR this thing for me, so she DVR'd it, and it was supposed to be paleolithic nutrition, and it was like three women sitting in a zoo eating fruits and vegetables and no meat right. for like 48 hours. Yeah, I, yeah. What's up with that, man? That's not paleo. Yeah, there's a little backstory with it. You know, with, uh, when my book first came out, uh, kind of my, um, uh, you know, PR folks were talking to his his uh, production people, and like we we had probably six or seven near misses of me almost going on the show, and but they just couldn't quite wrap their head around this whole paleo shtick, and and uh, what was interesting is we sent hit Dr. Oz and his staff. And, and what's really interesting, we sent him information about a girl, a 23, 24-year-old woman who, who had early onset aggressive uh, multiple sclerosis, uh, neuro, neurodegenerative autoimmune disease. The myelin sheath of the brain starts getting damaged in a really nasty condition. We did some work with this girl. Uh, she, she had brain imaging before that showed demyelination of her neurons. Brain imaging after eating paleo where the, the inflammation and the demyelination had reversed. We shot all this stuff to Dr. Oz in addition to a ton of other kind of testimonial type stuff and information on kind of the anti-inflammatory nature of the diet, the health improvements, all that sort of stuff. No real response. And then uh, there was one day Dr. Oz had something either Twitter or Facebook, I forget, where it was something like, 50% of Americans uh, either have type 2 diabetes or obesity or something like that. What do you do to manage your chronic disease? And it, it just seemed preposterous to me. I was like, why do you have a freaking chronic disease? You know. And so I tweeted on this thing and I said, Dr. Oz wants to know what you guys do to manage your chronic diseases. And uh, I, I linked back to his Facebook page. And normally Dr. Oz would have maybe like 100, 200 comments on, on a topic. He ended up with 5,000, 6,000 comments on this thing. And it was all the, the paleo zealots, you know, like basically like I reversed this disease, I reversed that disease. Why don't you pull your head out of your backside and, and uh, you know, get this thing figured out. And uh, right on the heels of this, Dr. Oz kind of did a slam piece on, on paleo. He had a, a gal that he's kind of working with, Dr. Molina, who did a slam piece on, on paleo is just very uneducated and particularly with, given the fact that Dr. Oz has this other information. He's been given this information on, uh, some of these health conditions that have been reversed. And now it, is this a university study? No. Is it, you know, is it a hundred percent variable, verifiable science? No. 
But it's pretty damn interesting. And, and this guy has access to millions and millions of people every single day. So if he says something, the, the potential for it to just get people experimenting with it is very, very high. And then, you know, I, I wrote a blog post basically outing him with all this background, this knowledge about uh, paleo and anti-inflammatory and autoimmunity and everything. And two days later, he released this this thing that, you know, they were going to have this, uh, what, what did they call it? it uh, I think it was Paleolithic diet. No, it, it, it was, it wasn't primal. It prehistoric? Was prehistoric was what they the called prehistoric it. The prehistoric diet. That's diet. what it was. And so they, it was this big rigmarole and it, it was a diet so extreme that they, they had to lock people in a cage. And so they locked these people in a zoo and they, they fed them fruit, nuts and, and veggies for two days. And not surprisingly, these fat, overweight women were somewhat less fat and overweight two days later and they had a, a little improvement in their blood <laughs> lipids and all that stuff. But, the, yeah, you know, so I, I think it was helpful in that, you know, if you generally take sick people and feed them better, they're going to be less sick. Um, he, he couched it all from this kind of vegan perspective. So he had no animal products in the mix, but he, he largely made a joke of the whole thing. And I, it's, Which I found to be completely just bullshit, just to be honest with you. And I just felt totally slighted that they would even call this prehistoric. If you go to any hunter-gatherer society, animal products, even if we're going to insects for protein, are going to be a huge part of their daily nutrition. Yeah. Anywhere. It's going to be fish. It's going to be rats. It, it doesn't matter what it, whether they can club it or beat it or forage it, they're going to eat it. And to insinuate that prehistoric man ate only vegetables was just the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. 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 And it, you know, without a doubt, but it, it, it's, uh, I guess I was, you know, I, in some ways I don't even know what to say about it. You know, it's like, you know, the historical element completely inaccurate, uh, the message that, you know, maybe if we, we eat more fruits and vegetables and some nuts and seeds, you might be healthier than eating standard, you know, junk. Probably accurate. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll sign off on that. But the, the thing that's just incredibly frustrating, and this is where it, it, to me, it's like a moral issue. This guy is sitting on information that, that you know, maybe paleo's right. Maybe it's wrong. Who knows? Maybe I'm a, a nutcase and I've just, you know, made all this stuff up. Uh, uh, there's still plenty of people that think evolution is, is bogus. Uh, shoot, there's still people who think that the earth is flat and that the, you know, the moon program was uh, a farce, you know. So I mean that, you know, who knows? It, it's a, a yeah. huge world of ideas, you know. Uh, uh, let's debate it and figure it out. But this guy's been sent some information that as a practicing physician should be intriguing at the very least. Because when you consider yeah. how many people die from autoimmune diseases, how much death and suffering occurs from these conditions, it should at least perk your ears up enough to just ask a question about it instead of making fun of it. And uh, Well, he's done stuff with other, like, kind of the high-protein thing before. I get Barry Sears on and, and some other folks, and he just kind of talked over him. And every time he does kind of kick the tires around this, he always says something which I don't know if I even believe. Every week I'm cutting into somebody's chest because of the fat deposits, which I don't know that this guy, I'm not saying he's lying, but I just don't know that a guy doing five shows a week is still operating. It, it That bugs me a little bit, but giving him the benefit of the doubt, I want someone, and I'd like this someone to be you, if maybe we can get you on there to, to be able to talk about this stuff and, and get it out, to say to him, and has that person ever been following a true high-protein, moderate-fat, zero-to-low-carb diet? Ever. 
Because I think the answer is no. If you're eating bacon fat and Twinkies, yeah, you're heading down that path. But we can't just blame the fat then. And, I mean, if you're up for it, I'll send my listeners, and I don't know how much this will do, but I'll, I'll create an email barrage, and if you want to coordinate that from your side, maybe we can get you on there, because I'd like to see someone articulate like yourself be able to be on there and defend these ideas. Yeah, we can give it a shot, but I mean, they, they, uh, if you remember the old Outer Limits show, you know, they control the horizontal and the vertical, like they, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, before Gary Tobbs went on the show, they basically were like, this is for entertainment. And just keep that in mind. And we're pretty, we're, we're pretty much going to dictate the way this thing goes. And so play along or we'll just edit it anyway and you'll look like an even bigger ass. So, I mean, we, we could certainly give it a shot, but it, they, um, uh, th- this guy's ethics are such that he's, he's more interested in getting his, his, you know, general mills, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> ad placement on advertisements. Show. Yeah then he is actually legitimately helping people. And so, I mean, we could that certainly sucks. give it a shot, but even if I get on the show, I seriously, it might not I'll be. end up getting thrown off because I'm, I'm just kind of a <laughs> dick and I'm, I'm probably not going to comply by what they want and I'll just walk off the thing if they start trying to shoehorn things into a direction that's, that's fake. Because so. I know he did that to Barry Sears. That's exactly what he did. And he put him on a spot. He's like, well, can you, will you go get your cholesterol checked right now? And Barry's like, no, because I don't even believe what you believe about cholesterol serum levels in the blood anyway. Yeah, it, it, it might know? have been Gary Tobbs, or, or maybe he did that with, with both of them. But, uh, yeah, yeah it, it, I mean, it, it, in that thing, that, that's kind of a funny gig because, like, my, my blood lipids look like the, like, classic, perfect thing that you would want for, like, American Medical Association. Yeah. Super high. See, that's why why I'd like you on there, because you could go, yeah, here you go. Take the blood, baby. Let's go. Uh, Maybe maybe it's not worth it. But, folks, if you'd like to see Rob on there, shoot an email over to Dr. Oz Show and say you want to see him on there, and you want to see a fair and balanced discussion. I I think that would be the key words to get in. And maybe maybe it's not worth doing, but I'd love to see somebody on there like yourself that could actually defend this stuff. Uh, historically, results-wise, and biochemically. Yeah, and if not, maybe I can shoot a double-leg takedown on him and ground and pound him before uh, security gets to me. So who knows? <laughs> that would be awesome. That, that would be a good PR moment for sure. So, <laughs> Well, cool, man. Uh, I want folks to know how they can get your book, where they can learn more about you, where they can find your podcast, hook up with you on Facebook, all that good stuff. Oh, you know, robwolf.com uh, is kind of the portal for all that. They can track down the Twitter feed, uh, Facebook connection there uh the podcast is linked off of there so that that's kind of the the go-to spot for all that stuff and then we have tons and tons of free material if you're not interested in buying the book but you want to try all this paleo stuff there's not a single thing that you need out of the book that's not for free on the website if you go to the frequently asked questions we have a, a quick start guide that tells you exactly how to do it if you are an athlete if you're trying to lose weight if you've got an autoimmune condition, uh, it, it's got a 30-day meal plan. We have a shopping and food guide. We have the food matrix, which shows you how to generate over 37,000 meals from a, a very short list of ingredients. So there is absolutely no excuse not to give this stuff a shot. It's all free. Interestingly, we, we were tracking a little bit of metrics on my book sales, and 40% of the books that were being purchased were from people who had already done the whole paleo shtick for free with one of my downloads 
And then just almost out of like a reciprocity thing, they were like, shoot, I've, I've got to buy the book. I've got all the results I need, but I'm, I'm going to buy the book just to support you. So I, I love hearing that because I say it on, I have, I do another podcast called Five Minutes with Jack on Business Principles and all these people are doing all this great content on YouTube and all. I'm like, you guys need to just spool your stuff up, even if it's there for free and then offer it to people for purchase in a different format and they'll buy it because they know it works and they want to support you because you've helped them. Mm-hmm. And, and it's awesome to hear you say that's playing out for you. I know I kind of did it. I was already on my path with the food and all. And after Brian came on, I kind of checked in. You, I'm like, I got to get a copy of this book. I bought it on uh, Kindle and read it on my iPhone on a flight to Denver and back and uh, finished it on two flights because it was that good. Dude, I wish I could write them that fast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I understand. I have several unfinished books and no finished books. Um so yeah, um, man, folks, get on over to Rob's site, and I think Rob will put it this way: if you if you want to see if it works for you, just try it for thirty days. You got nothing to lose. Just possibly getting healthier. <laughs> maybe some maybe some butt. You might lose some butt right. in thirty days. Right. You know, an X from your XL shirt. Um, it, it's it's worked fabulously for me, Rob. Thank you for being on the show today. And uh, folks, I'll have uh, links to all of Rob's stuff, his Facebook and all that, and robwolf.com and all today's show notes. Again, Rob, man, thank you for being here. Uh, this is a big honor for me to be able to interview you. My pleasure, man. I had a great time. Would love to come back anytime you want to have me. Oh, I'd love to have you back, folks. I'll tell you what, the best way when we have guests come back, folks, post your questions for Rob in the comments of today's episode, and we'll bring them back, and we'll go through those questions. And anything you didn't hear about or challenges you want to throw or anything like that, let us know, and we'll uh, we'll get Rob back on. Rob, again, thanks, man. Thanks. Take care. All right, folks, with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Rob Wolf, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Revolution.